Hello, everybody. Welcome to Beyond the Blind. This is Chris Adams. Uh, just a little reminder, we are doing the call giveaway, so you can jump on BTBN's page. I posted up one of my calls, and we're going to do a giveaway for every episode that you share. So if you subscribe to us and you share one of these episodes, go ahead and make sure you comment on that picture, so that way you can have an additional entry into the giveaway. I'm going to do it Probably sometime mid-May, late May, I don't know. It kind of depends on how many episodes we get going on. But uh, today I'm joined by Travis Ward out of Huntington, Tennessee. And that's in West Tennessee, right around, uh, you know, that Real Foot Lake area. Um, just a really, you know, historic waterfowl area. And he's been churning out some really cool calls. I've been following for quite a while. So uh, we brought him on today. So I hope you guys enjoy. What's going on, Travis? Uh, not too much, man. Just hanging out in the shop, tinkering around. That's what I do most of the time, honestly. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the best thing to do in the middle of the day. It, uh, it's been kind of weird, man. The, the weather's been hot, cold. It's been right today is the perfect temperature to be out in the shop. Oh, yeah. So you were telling me yeah. you guys had some pretty big storms roll through the other day. We hit... Two uh, two days ago, we had some pretty bad ones, and last night we caught some hail, but nothing too serious. You said you guys caught a lot more than we did. Yeah, we got bad wind, a bunch of trees down, power's been out. Um, last night, we missed where I live. We missed some of the worst stuff, but over towards the Mississippi River and in the boot hill of Missouri, it, it got pretty rough. There was some, some hail on the other side of us that I know I saw on one of the Facebook weather pages I follow, somebody shared a picture where they had eight inches of hail right around their house. So. Dude, that's insane. Yeah. Could you imagine that you'd be replacing a brand new freaking roof? You'd be replacing everything. You said you do um, like farming losses and insurance type stuff on that? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I work for a crop insurance company and uh, I'm basically overclaimed for west tennessee so from the the mississippi river to tennessee river in tennessee and i cover all of arkansas so is the uh, tennessee river to the east of you or to the west of you tennessee river's to the east of me i live about 30 minutes from the river and uh, that's where i've hunted for the most of my hunting life anyway uh just in the last few years kind of started hunting a little bottom here around home just uh, just so we didn't have to drive 30 minutes, put a boat in every day. Just getting lazy, I guess. <laughs> Dude, I can understand that. We uh, we were talking a little bit about it. You know, you live so close to that really great waterfowl area, and that's similar to us. You know, you're a little bit closer, but here in Missouri, we're like an hour and a half from being in a really good area, two hours away from being in, you know, that historic Missouri, you know, Mississippi flyway area, but the waterfowling's been so hit or miss lately, it's like, I would rather just go hunt around the house and spend 30 minutes and be able to scout it every day and kind of pattern what birds are here versus rolling the dice on the weekend and driving two hours away. Uh, tell me about it. I mean, we we got a farm we own that we fixed up and fixed the levee, put in a floodgate, built a blind and all that. And that was two seasons ago. So um, that's kind of when it all really started going downhill, at least over where I live. And, 
you know, just talking to other people that hunt the bottom, everybody's, you know, there's people that's been hunting there 25 years, and they say the last two years are the worst years ever. And so that's the, that's the two years we've been hunting it. So we really don't even know what we got. But. Did you guys, it seemed like we had a pretty decent push of birds right before our, because I don't know when your guys' season starts. I'm in the south zone of Missouri, so it doesn't start until Thanksgiving. But if you yeah, go over closer, ours, yeah. it's for you guys the same too? Uh, see, it's so weird. If you go over to the Boot Hill in Missouri and you're like 50 miles from the state line of Arkansas and Missouri and Tennessee, they have a middle zone over there that opens up a whole month earlier and they're about the same latitude as we are. It's just really weird the way that it works out over there. Um, but I noticed we had a decent amount of birds that were here before season and then there was nothing until the very last week of season. We didn't even get a, like any real cold pushes. Well, see, that's kind of us. I've always said that, you know, we get a push of birds before season, and then we get a push of birds at Christmas. And if you don't get that second push of birds around Christmas, you're not going to have a very good year. And that's kind of been what the last the story the last two years. We just we would have birds early, and then you're literally hunting the same birds the entire season, and it just it makes for bad hunting. You know, you can. I mean, I got in on some good hunts this year. You know, slip around and find a, a farm that hasn't been hunted. Nobody's hunting it, and you walk in there and you're like, "Man, we're gonna absolutely murder them!" And uh, you might go in there and do that that first morning, and then that that farm's done for the year. That's wild, man. Do you build um, with your job? Do you build a lot of really good relationships with farmers? Like, I have a buddy that does the. Uh, he does like consulting for farmers out in West Kansas, uh, Eastern Colorado, and goes in and tells them what they need for their soils, for crops, and stuff like that. And when I went out there to hunt with him on a trip, like we were hunting on all of his clients' land, you know, that he's been working with forever. Being a uh, adjuster and an insurance guy, do you build a really good relationship with the farmers around there? Yeah, pretty good. Some of them. I mean, it's it'd be just like any other job. You know, you just kind of get along with some people better than others. Um, yeah, I guess the, the thing that stops that is that, you know, I, I'm only out there seeing the guys when they have a problem. So, uh, you know, if they have a good year, I, I won't even talk to them that year. Uh, but, yeah, I've I got several guys that I know real good. And nope, you cut out, buddy. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you perfect. Cut out a little bit. You said you had a couple guys you know really well. Yeah, yeah, I've got some guys that, I mean, I, I deal with fairly often. They're they're good people. Uh, I haven't gotten any hunting rights yet or anything. But uh, I do, I try to pick out and say, I assign the claims. So I try to pick out the uh, the farmers in the areas that have good duck hunting. <laughs> <laughs> you got and, to, man. Use your resources. It, it hasn't worked out for me just yet just because – it ends up the guys I pick, they're duck hunters too, and so they don't they don't lease out any holes or anything else. But uh, I'll get one one day. <laughs> well, that area has to be like the biggest difference, and like I guess being lucky that I'm from this part of Missouri, you know, because Kansas City is really really good, St. Louis is really good. Then everybody knows, you know, in between around Great Bend, that's where uh, Tony Vandemore and everybody's from. Being down here in southwest Missouri, we don't have hardly any pressure. I mean, you're, you're looking at turkey hunting, 
turkey hunters. I mean, we're one of the best turkey hunting areas in the country, statistically. Um, and then deer hunting, everybody's a freaking deer hunter. But waterfowlers, the pressure is so limited that uh, everybody kind of knows everybody that duck hunts around here. But over where you're at is one of the highest pressured areas in the freaking country, man. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> it's nuts. And, and uh, like the bottom I hunted in, it used to be great. And, uh, well, maybe not great, but it was, it was good enough to keep just about anybody happy. And, uh, but now there's just every little pothole that has water has a blind in it that gets hunted 40 days a year. And the birds just don't have any room to rest. Um, and it's, there, there's been a study done. They've taken, it's the Tennessee Mallard Project, and they've been tr- putting some tracker devices on mallards and stuff. And it was, it was crazy when they, they showed the data on, and literally those birds would just pick up. If they moved at all, they would just pick up and fly to a different refuge. And then when it got warm, they headed straight back north. Well, and so, they're, the mallard is so smart, man. It uh, it seems like it goes nocturnal really quick. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I've hung a couple bottoms in the last year where it's, you look at the refuge counts and you think, man, there's birds everywhere. And you may go five days in a row and not see hardly anything. And then that uh, you may get in there one day and there may be a private field that nobody's that we we got some people that have the you know their own private refuges and stuff like uh, like Vandemore does and all that. And <clears throat> you know they may go in and hunt one day a week or something. And when they go hunt, everybody around there knows it not because you're hearing them shoot, but because you just see just wads and wads of birds flying but they're they're unkillable birds you can't they're not going to work to anything they're just going to go to a refuge yeah they learn that with it being you know imprinted and stuff like that through generations they learn that so fast and uh it's funny man it you know we'll hunt in the afternoon sometimes if it gets really cold and uh you'll see them they start flying five minutes after shooting time or they'll, uh, they'll all be pouring into the refuge in the morning right before shooting time starts. Yep, it's just, uh, it's just turned into a game. It's, uh, thankfully, it's just something I, I enjoy. I just enjoy the experience. If I was going for the killing, I probably would have stopped going several years ago. <laughs> That's why they call it hunting, right? That's right. So what is the... Um, like we hunt a lot of farm ponds and rivers and uh we'll occasionally dry field hunt if the conditions are right but what's the uh the hunting situation you guys do a lot of crops out there is there mainly cotton corn soybeans so we got you know of course we got the the mississippi river on one side the tennessee river on the other and most of the duck hunting in west tennessee is feeder you know, tributaries off the Mississippi River, you know, the Obine River, the 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 North Fork of the Fork of Deer, South Fork, and everything else. And it's just bottoms that, uh, I mean, there's swamp holes, there's timber holes, and then the, the cropland up against there, a lot of people have levees, they, they plant food there. Um, I mean, we've really got just about, we've got all of it. Um, seems like everybody over here is always looking for that elusive t- timber hole um, and there's just there's not enough good ones to go around 
and it's gotten to the point where several years ago you could take I don't know five to ten thousand dollars and go get you a really good duck hole now it doesn't matter if you got twenty thousand you're probably not going to be able to find one that's so wild man I can't even and imagine I'm talking about for a one year lease yeah that's crazy and if you don't, then the next guy is going to come in there. Like, there's probably a line of people waiting to pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars for some duck holes without even having numbers on them. Yeah, I mean, you just you don't, you don't ever even hear about them um, anymore. It's gotten to the point where, um, I mean, you could post up a picture on Facebook of a little swamp. It may not be anywhere near a good flyway, and uh, put five thousand dollars lease year on there and it'll be gone in an hour so that's crazy do you uh so for like do you do any public hunting around there is it all done on the river do you guys you know is there like i know real foot does a uh like blind draw and stuff like that where you can put on like a year long blind and stuff like that do you, have you ever participated in anything like that uh i mean we've got we got our wmas around here um that they plant corn or, or milo if I can't get corn or something in. Uh, and I'm talking about this is over towards the Tennessee River. And those are all draw blinds. Now, the same deal with those. It's honestly, it's basically turned into a lottery, the blind drawing has. Um, the, the blinds are basically bought and sold under the table. So there's so many people that go and buy a license just to try to draw a blind to sell it that uh, somebody that just wants a blind to hunt basically has no chance of getting drawn <clears throat> and then you've got tigret which is this, uh i mean that's that's swamp and timber holes and old river runs and stuff that's uh those there's some really good blinds over there but there again it's just nearly impossible to get drawn for one yeah now uh, like, do you think that that has really hurt the duck hunting around there, these private sales of, like, government property type thing? I don't think so. I mean, it's they're, they're always going to get hunted. It's just a matter of who's in it. Um, I mean, you can you can go over to, to Camden, Tennessee, to Camden Bottoms, and uh, one of the big fields over there. I mean, right now, the blind drawing hasn't happened yet, but I can tell you probably it's going to be in each blind on opening morning next year. <laughs> That's um, a lot. Just, Whoever's got the deepest pockets. Yeah, I mean, and it, it just gets to everybody knows who, who's willing to buy a blind and, and how much money they're going to have with them. And um, that's just, it's just a big game now. But, and then the Tennessee River over there, it's, you know, it's part of Kentucky Lake for us, so there's bays and stuff, and it's it's public hunting. People have, like, we've got a floating blind in one of the bays out there, and we leave it there year-round. Uh, and that's it's been a pretty good hunting spot for us over the years. It's uh, it's kind of dropped the last several years. Used to, we had that, that millfall, that grass, big grass mats on the rivers that the ducks just loved. And... Uh, I guess they came in and sprayed, or, or I know I'd heard they was dropping some type of pellets from helicopters to kill it, because it was it was messing with the dam and stuff. But all the grass is pretty much gone in our area, and it's just since that happened, we just don't have the birds we used to. Gotta love that uh, educated decisions made by a higher up sometimes. 
Yeah, well, it's one of those things we can we can complain about it all we want to, but it's not TVA's duck hunting is not on TVA's radar. So they've got a lot more important things on their on their mind, like power, electricity, <laughs> I guess. Right, that important stuff that people have to have. <laughs> yeah. So you uh, you grow up. You're from Huntington. You've lived there your whole yeah. life. Yep, I've uh, I've lived here all my life except for for when I went to UT Martin to go to college for a few years. That's about it. Nice. So, did you grow up duck hunting? Is it something you've done since a kid? Yeah, yeah. So I I was that kid. I've got a picture somewhere of me with one of those little uh, toy guns. It looks about like a Red Rider sitting in a shot sitting in a duck blind with a chamois shirt on next to dad because i wasn't old enough to carry a real gun so i was i was always just tagging along and stuff till i got old enough to hunt on my own (laughs) my uh one of my really good hunting buddies his kid is seven now but uh when we first started hunting together his kid was two and we started taking him out to the duck blind at like three and he actually found him a pair of waders that fit him at like three <laughs> and these things are so tiny it's ridiculous you would think that they're like for a little lab puppy yeah so i've got i've got one boy that's he's about two and a half and the other one will be a, a year old in about two weeks and uh both of them blow duck calls uh, i think the one that's about to be a year old may be a little bit better than my two and a half year old actually <laughs> but uh the, the oldest one, he's just a, a tag along, wants to go everywhere. And uh, I, I'm hoping I can get him in the blind at least one day this year on a warm day or something, if I can convince my wife, but we'll see. <laughs> I don't think kids of call makers have a choice. Uh, I have two girls and then uh, my stepson, he's seven now, but uh, my two girls are six and five. And when they were little, Every time I'd be tuning a call or something like that in the house, they'd always have to be right there next to me, see what's going on, what's making things work, and asking questions about different things. Now that they're getting to you know, be six and five, they have a little more attitude to them. So if I go start ripping on a call that I'm working on, they're like, Dad, can you take that back outside, please? <laughs> it always yeah, cracks so, me up. So it's funny, my... My two and a half year old, he, he talks all the time. We I always tell my wife he's just got a lot to say. <laughs> but uh, he he started now. He understands like we have to go to work, you know, and he has to go to daycare because we have to go to work. So when I carry him to daycare in the mornings, he'll uh, he'll ask me if I if I got to work, and I'll say yeah, and he'll say dad dad working on duck calls or dad dad working on computers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we're probably a little both. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny, man. They, they, you always like. I remember being, you know, them around that one year old, one and a half year old. You're like, I just want you to start talking, so you could tell me stuff. And then they hit about, you know, six months later. You're like, I just want you to be quiet for five <laughs> minutes, please. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I get that sometimes, but I don't know. At his age, he's just, and they learn so much so quick, and it's. They're so funny, man. With everything they say. Yeah, they're so funny, man. Then they start asking you questions you don't know the answer to. You know, (laughs) you don't realize how little you know until a kid starts asking (laughs) questions. 
That's the truth. <laughs> so you grew up duck hunting, and uh, that was always the, the life passion. Did you know somebody that was a, a call maker? How would you get into that game? Yeah, so I don't know if you know Mike McLemore, but, I mean, I grew up in the same town as Mike, and kind of always looked up to him. You know, he was a, he was a three-time world champion, champion, champions caller. He made incredible calls. You know, I can't even afford them now. Um, but he was always, you know, the guy, if we, there was a hunting show around or something, I'd say, Daddy, let's go to the hunting show. I want to talk to Mr. Mike. And the older I got, you know, Mike would say, hey, I'm going to the show. You know, I got this this little benefit thing they're having up at the, the Civic Center. You want to come sit at the booth with me? So, yeah, so I just go sit up there with him. And uh, so that's, you know, I got into a little bit of contest calling for a while, and, and he would help me out with that a little bit. And he was kind of the person that I guess got me wanting it, wanting to start making a duck call. Um, but he was he was of that generation where, you know, he spent his life figuring out what he knew as far as making calls. And, you know, that generation, they made their living off of it. It wasn't a hobby. So, you know, they didn't really share information that, that much. Um, so, I mean, he never taught me how to make a call. Now, I would, I would, you know, as I got older, which he was already, he, he wasn't making calls when I started, really. But, you know, I would, me and Dad would go by there and carry a call I'd made by, and uh, he'd blow it and look at it, and he'd, he'd say, well, you know, the, the feed's real tight on it. Need to loosen that up. But he wouldn't tell me how. Um, and that, I don't know, I'm pretty grateful for that looking back because it, it made me learn it all on, on my own. And uh, and then, so once I decided that I wanted to learn how to make a call, and that was partly from Mike, and then Dad and myself got into to buying old like, metal recalls. And we would go to the, the Real Foot, which... At the time, it was the a waterfowl festival more than it was a call makers and collectors event. You know, I mean, there was everybody and their brothers set up, and I, I met a couple of real cool old makers there. You know, there was Terry Norris that was just a phenomenal woodworker. He could make anything in the world. Um, El Quinn, which made. I'll step out on a limb and say the best metal recall ever made. <laughs> um, and just, you know, just kind of became friends with some of those old guys. And uh, uh, Mr. Quinn gave me a call to, to go blow in the junior metal re contest over there one time. And, and I won and came back. And he was just, you know, I've never seen a man as happy as he was. <laughs> But uh, There's just so, so from that history. moment on, I, I carried all my money, and I could literally stand at his booth and somebody pick up a call and say, "How much is this one?" He'd say, "It's two hundred bucks." And uh, when that guy walked off, I'd look at it. He'd say, "I'd sell you that call for forty dollars if you want it." <laughs> <laughs> There's but, just so uh, much history growing up right there, man. That uh, you're oh, just really ingrained in it. It's almost like being a, a football player in Texas. Oh, yeah, that's, it's it's crazy. Um, I mean, literally, which it's, 
it's kind of like that now, but they were more well-known back then. I mean, you get over towards the Mississippi River in the Real Foot Lake area, and there wasn't a call maker every 15 miles. <laughs> there was, around Real Foot Lake, there was one every 150 yards, it seems like. Um, you know, everybody made calls almost. It, it, you know, looking back, I mean, Lord knows how many call makers you could put the 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 area of real foot lake down for yeah dude it's it's, uh, it's, it's just absolutely crazy well and, and they uh, they have like their you know that their own real foot style tone board and everything i know you do a, a lot of cut down style calls and i've seen you with some j frames but have you ever messed around with that metal reed yeah yeah so i i haven't made many um i've probably made about 10 i and uh Actually, I entered one at the Real Foot Show, and um, I, God knows how much time I spent on it because I didn't really know how to make one. Uh, that's just the kind of person I am. You know, I'll just try to figure something out on the go. <laughs> and uh, somehow or another, I won. I don't know. I didn't blow any of the other calls. It was. It was. A, it ended up. I was pretty proud of how it sounded. But uh, since then, I've, I've ordered some more stuff and tried to try to get them dialed in. I did okay at NWTF. I think I, I got second up there. But I, I say all that, but the guys that I'm competing against are literally the guys that are teaching me, and they, they honestly know more about it than I do. It's uh, it's just just luck of the draw. But it's they're they're completely different. Um, it's just the reason I got into it. It's it's almost like it's a dying art, and I've uh, it's just been part of my life for so long. I don't. I just want to try to carry it on a little bit. Well, you're carrying that heritage along. It's kind of, you know, somebody made a short documentary film of uh, one of the guys down in Louisiana who was make going out and hand cutting cane down. And, you know, taking an old comb and knocking off all the teeth off the comb and sanding that down and making an old cane call. And that's something that everybody in the South did back in the day, but nobody knows how to do that anymore. That's and right. it's kind of like that metal reed. It's that heritage, man. That is part of waterfowling for 100 years in that area, and we're losing people that know how to do it. So the fact that you're carrying that on is always so cool and fascinating to somebody who just builds a regular J-frame call. Oh yeah, it's uh, when uh, when the I don't know if you saw him calling nuts. You know they have Wade. He made the the Fred Rose style real foot jig mm -hmm. again, which I don't I don't use a jig when I build mine. But I bought one just because you know I, I may never get a chance to own a real foot jig. I mean, literally that jig is sitting in my call collection right now. It's not even in my shop. It's just a piece um, of history. Yeah, and, and that's what it is. Uh, but. You know, I was glad to, to see all that come back up. You know, even if if five guys learned about metal recalls, didn't know about them before, you know, that's that's something pretty cool. But there there's actually several guys on Real Foot Lake, some of the old school guides and stuff, they still blow them. Uh, and the, the, to mine and your ear, they, they sound horrible, but the, it's something different to a duck's ear. Uh, it's... I mean, I guess it's just not the same, the same layers or, 
or Rich and Tone or Echo that they've heard all the way down from Canada. And, I mean, there's days where it really works. I think it's, you know, it's kind of like setting out different decoys, like you said. Just something that's different. I think they sound realistic at a distance. It, it like, almost like a, not a cut down and, like, you know how a cut down, you blow it in the shop and you're like, man, that thing sounds sounds slightly flat it uh it just doesn't have that same pop that a j it has the pop it that's the wrong word but it doesn't have that same sound as a j frame that crispness and then you go out at 40 yards and you're like man that thing sounds like a freaking duck well the difference in a i mean honestly a cut down and a j frame or a a memory in my mind kind of have the same purpose uh but for the reason the guy at Real Foot is still blown today. So a metal reed call, as far as a hail call, is going to have that real high pitched, um, and, and like you say, it almost sounds flat. Uh, but it's it's piercing. You know, it can it can travel through the air a lot better than you know just your average J frame call. And it's the same thing with a cut down. You know, it's it's made to be you know low tone raspy and carry through the trees you know get up and break ducks so they, they kind of serve the same purpose i would just it's a whole lot easier for me to listen to a cut down than it is a, a metal reed but <laughs> well that's uh you know like you said it's it's part of the heritage it's it's really cool to see guys get out there and still use it especially you know getting out there and still using the same tools that people have been using for a hundred years um, because it's, we're so obsessed in the waterfowl world. We're all, call makers are a little bit different, but even call makers are still gadgety guys. Like, uh, Brad just was demonstrating that new, um, O-ring cutter today and, or yesterday, one of the other two. And it's, you know, what's the next step? What, what's the next evolution in the game? Everybody switched to Sidka for a while because it was, you know, the, the greatest thing ever. And, you know, everybody had five-in-one layer jackets from Drake at one point. And now you see brands like, like Filson and, you know, guys that are just out there wearing hoodies and stuff like that, making more of a comeback. It's just that, that classic mindset of having a, a wax-coated jacket versus having the brand-new you know, newest technology thing that just has that cool feel to it and uh, that authentic feel to get out there and kill it the same way your grandpa did 60 years ago. Uh, I understand. I've got both. I've got Sitka. I've got wax canvas. I've got a little bit of everything. But uh, I'll tell you, I will say, if it gets, if it gets real cold, I'm leaving that wax jacket at the house <laughs> man those things are so heavy too that oh. just the weight difference like that new stuff works there's a reason that the new stuff is the way it is because it's lighter and it works that's right so you get into call making was that before or after you were doing contest calling tell me a little bit about your contest calling because we haven't had i think i talked to colton and then i i have seth Fields, who's around from where you're at, you said you knew him. He's going to come on and do a, a podcast, more of the contest calling side of things. But what was your experience in it? Uh, honestly, mine got started out. Um, I was already making calls. When I say making calls, I was making firewood. <laughs> uh, I literally turned my first duck call before I could even drive. Um, but the uh, the contest calling. Um, you know, 
I was I was practicing started out Main Street and I was practicing with one of Mike's dogs and, and he was helping me out and he said hey you need to go um, get you a different call if you're going to be competing uh, he said this is a, a good call he said you sound good on it he said but it's not what it's made for so I went down and, and met with Slayton Gear in which he was I guess he still is with Buck Gardner calls and I got a kryptonite and which is their their main street call and I've blown it a little bit and I blew in that uh, they had over in Stuttgart uh, right the same weekend they had the Worlds they had a Chicken Sophie Memorial Contest and basically it's for high school seniors and uh, the the winner in first second and third place gets uh, a scholarship for college and I was blowing that kryptonite and I had never practiced anything in my life like I had contest calling at the time and first round just knocked it out of the park second round knocked it out of the park third round I just absolutely fell on my face and did horrible and uh, so I got I got third and after looking back at the scores, I was just wearing it out through the first two rounds. I, you know, I had a pretty good lead. But uh, after that, Dad was like, why don't you go blowing this last chance regional over here? And I was like, I'm no work. I'm not as good as those guys. No, I said, I'm not wasting my time. Well, the, the two guys that ended up beating me in that chicken, Sophie, I, they both placed top 10 in the world that year, I think. It may have been top 15. But looking back, I should have tried that last chance. But So that was that's when I was a senior. When I got to college, I didn't practice as much. Um, I had other things on my mind. But I had a at final flight, which is about 15 minutes from the college I went to. They had the, the Tennessee State and the, another regional contest. And I went and blew in one of those, which especially since I hadn't been practicing, those guys were just on a different level than I was. Uh, I think that time Slayton Gearing just ran off with it. But that was that was the most of my contest calling. They had some, like here at our local fair, they had, a, after Mike McLemore passed away, they had a, um, a little a meat contest in his memory. And they had... The, the lady that was over it had messaged me and asked if I would blow in. Didn't know how many people would be in it. And so I did, and it was, see, the first year. Hold on, let me walk over here and look at it. <laughs> it doesn't even have it. 2012 is when that was. I'm looking at the first place trophy. I think Seth Fields got second place somewhere. You might bring it up. But so it was like me, and this was before Seth got into contest calling, by the way. But uh, it was like me and Seth, and I'm trying to think. There was two or three other guys in it, and it was, I don't know, just a fun little contest. We all knew each other. So the next year, we uh, they had another contest. Keep in mind, it's our little local fair, the Huntington Fair. And uh, let's see, it was me and I think Seth blew in it that year. I'm not real sure. Uh, and then there was another guy that 
the way he sounded, I think he was pretty big into contest calling. I didn't really know. He was he was fairly young. And a couple guys, you know, big duck hunters from the area. And then there was this boy, I can't remember his name. But uh, he was probably 11 years old, 10 or 11. And they had a, uh, a junior, which was under 18, and then they had an 18 and up. And I was obviously blowing in the 18 and up. Well, this little 10 or 11-year-old wins his, and then he, he enters in ours just because he wanted to, even though he wasn't 18. Well, he just absolutely dumped all of us. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess that was pretty much it as far as my contest calling. I never really – I just kind of fell out of it. I never really got into the traveling to contest and all that. Um, I think that uh, that is a – one of the, the tougher things about it is there's so – like many, like at least you're in an area, and I'm kind of in a similar area where there's a lot of good contests around, like Rogers, you know, Stuttgart and Ballard and stuff like that that are at least close. But I, I think that has hurt contest calling so much is that guys are having to travel so far because there's a lot fewer contests now. Yeah, yeah, I, and one thing that that kind of turned me off of it was how serious it was um which now that i've you know through call making and, and i've judged nwtf for a couple of years you know i've met some of the big contest callers of course i you know i know i've known seth fields a long time i met you know kyle jones and kelly powers and all that up there but if you don't know those guys and you go blowing a contest um and say you enter in a contest, you've been practicing, you don't know anybody there. Those guys don't seem very nice. <laughs> and that's because it's, you know, it's, it's game time for them. You know, that, that's what they're doing. I um, mean, someone's making a living off of that. And, well, not necessarily that, but that's building their reputation in the hunting industry. And, uh, you know, that's to them. And when they get back there behind the stage and, and waiting on their number to get called, you know, that's like the fourth quarter for an NFL football game. You know, it's it's time to go. It's time to be serious. It's not time for joking around or anything. And uh, at the time, that, you know, that almost turned me off. But uh, now I've gotten to know some of those guys. I know that's not the kind of people they are. But it, yeah, I think, like you said, it's that killer mindset, you know, that Michael Jordan in the playoffs where he was an asshole. People hated him, and it's because he yeah. wanted to win, and it was all all business. And, you know, I did some of the live streaming for contests a couple of years ago. I was pretty into, you know, trying to talk to different contest callers and help live stream stuff like that. And you can tell there's very much that close-knitness to them. There's, you know, that group of guys that are all together, grew up together. They've all been contest calling for years together, and everybody's super, super close. And it's almost like a little clickish. And if you're an outside guy, I could see how that would be off-putting and hard. But then once you, you break into it and you actually start talking to the guys that are outside of game time, it's a whole different ball game. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, call makers can be kind of the same way. Um, it's... And I don't think anybody does it on purpose, but it's, 
it's almost like your first starting out do, are people going to take you serious and, and sometimes I mean I, I'm kind of a guy that um, you know when I was starting out and getting back into it you know I'd ask somebody a question and I was more worried about am I just worrying this guy to death am I, am I bothering him am I knowing him and uh, it may have just been my mindset you know as to you know and how I perceived how he was responding but that, that's one thing I've really tried to do you know if, if somebody sends me a message and, and they're starting out with call making or something and, and it may be a question that I think you know man you could google search this or something <laughs> Um, I, you know, I'm obviously not going to say that. I'm just going to help them out just because, I mean, I've been there. I've been on both sides of the fence. And, um, you know, when I first started out call making, um, and I carried a, a little bag of some calls I've made to real foot. And this was probably 10 years ago. And the guys I knew there at the time was like Scott Simmons and Brian Phillips and, Ronnie Turner, uh, John Cap, you know, just just awesome guys, and uh, you know they were quick to. Uh, I mean, I think Ronnie Turner he traded me a call back then, and uh, that was the first person that ever had any desire in one of my calls. I, I was on top of the moon when I left. <laughs> He's one of the uh, nicest guys ever, man. Oh yeah. Uh, he will. He will speak his mind. Oh yeah. Kind of hard. He's kind of hard to to figure out if he's being serious or joking around. Sometimes I think he's got a little bit of both behind whatever he says most of the time. But but yeah, he's a he's a great guy, and so are all the rest of them. So those those guys kind of several of them have helped me over the years. You know, I I felt like I could ask them any stupid question and, and knew I wasn't bothering them. And I think what you said with that is, like, that's the same way I felt when I first got into it. You've been doing it quite a while. You know, it, it probably doesn't feel like it sometimes. Sometimes it probably feels like 100 years. But, well, uh, I didn't, let me make this clear. Between 2000 and, uh, I don't even remember the first year, probably 2008 and 2000. February of last year, between 2008 and February of last year, I probably made less than 100 calls and might have sold 15 of them. You know, it was just something fun I would do. I had a little shop that's basement. Um, but Yeah, but, but yeah, I, I, that being said, so, I don't look at the amount people are selling, trading, you know, whatever, wheeling and dealing as their experience. I look at how many times they've gone out there and they've, you know, sanded that tone board or, you know, worked on this problem. And even if how much firewood have you made, you know, is the real measure of how long you've been doing it. Somebody who goes out there and they've won a contest and then the next year they have a CNC line made by somebody else with their name on it. Like, that's not the same thing to me as somebody who's gone out there and figured it out themselves for hours and hours and years and years Every day I feel like there's something that I'm getting better at, call-making-wise. And that's from screwing something else up ten times, you know. And I might be a slow learner, but, you know, that's that's how I've learned versus somebody else who just comes out and they've attached their name to it, and now they're a call-maker. Well, to me, when you can really call yourself a good call-maker, which I can't, 
I can't say that about myself a lot of times. It's when you can cut a tone board, sand, you know, file it down to the jig, get it out, tune it up, and it's not right, and you can you know what to do to fix that problem. Um, that is what takes, in my mind, years to figure out. You know, and, and a lot of times you can't fix the problem, but you can identify what what went wrong. Um, I figured out that the uh, you know having a really straight tight tenon is uh, if you don't start out with that, you're just you're playing roulette. I mean, it's a 50-50 chance it's going to come out okay. Um, and, and that's what <clears throat> you know. For years, I was just you know I had a little public jig and I would cut it off that jig and if it sounded good, awesome. If it didn't, I'd throw it away. Um, but but now you know I've learned when I when I pull something out of the jig, you know what I can do to it to, to get it where I want it, and that's to me that's what separates so many people. Yeah, and that ability to diagnose. That's where you know you take you know I know John Kemp posted a picture a while back, and Mingo posted a picture of all the different jigs. I mean that's where that comes from. Um, now that that hybrid cut down I'm making, honestly, I I couldn't have done it as easy as I did in another million years. I literally went hunting somewhere in the bottom of that day was trying to break ducks and just I didn't have a call that could break them. And I remember I'd blown John's detox before and I loved it. And uh, I don't have the air for a regular cut down. I just I don't and uh, I came home that night and I said, you know, I'm just going to go to the shop and see what I can come up with. Something that's louder, more raspy, you know, fast, and just has that, you know, that loud pop. And literally about 45 minutes later, I have my hybrid cut down tone board. <laughs> right, right. And I haven't changed the thing since. I'm still using all the same measurements boards and everything else now that's just that's the luck of the draw but <laughs> if it would have taken me a year I was going to come up with something like that and I think that's pretty common guys spend so much time trying to uh, you know perfect that one and I think that's the the biggest thing is you'll see a younger call maker guys been doing it two or three years that has you know six different types of calls that they make and it's you know, maybe they've been turning for a long time and playing with tone boards for a long time. But you know, you know from experience that it takes so long and so many errors and there's not enough time in the day to perfect, you know, the one call in three months. Like, you're not going to get your first tone board in three months unless you're doing it night and day and just making piles and piles and piles of firewood. And by that point, you're just getting frustrated and breaking stuff and throwing stuff away. And... uh I don't know. I just feel like it's a process. It ta- it's it's kind of like golf, you know. I'm, I'm not a golf guy, but that's something that you're perfecting over time, learning tricks and, you know, approaches that are so much that have to do with it rather than just trying to force the issue and just get it down as quick as you can. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and I've had several guys message me and 
and several guys send me, you know, a tone board, you know, when they're starting out, like, you know, they send me a tone board and say, hey, try this out and let me know if you think it's good enough to have a jig made. And at first I would, you know, I would give them pointers, you know, I'd say, try this, try that, you know, send them pictures, say, take a little bit more off here or something. But uh, I, I've kind of changed my mindset on that to the point where, you know, if, if you like it, if you like the way it blows, and you're happy with it, then send it off and have a jig mate. Because you might not, you know, it may take you another two months to get a tone board you like as, as that one. And for me, it's easier to make small changes from a jig I already have and, you know, and know that it's something I can repeat and then, you know, have a jig mate off of, off of something that I've changed. Uh, and I, I mean, I know a lot of people do kind of the same thing. You know, you can you can look at a couple of my jigs, and honestly, you can line them up next to each other and not even be able to really tell much of a difference. But um, they they might sound completely different. They might be built for a different back backboard or or length or something else. So it's. It's, it's easy for a new guy to get discouraged because it's such small changes and and literally somebody could write a, a freaking book about tone boards. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think that's another thing. Like you said, um, getting it close, getting a really good starting point is so much easier to make little changes after you've got that good, clean starting point that, uh, it you know, you almost have to have that before you really – like you – to me, the way I look at it, just for myself, is you have to perfect one call. Like, you have to get that tone board to where you can send it off and you're happy with it. And uh, it might not be the way that everybody likes to blow a call, but if you're the one who's going out there and tuning it and trying to figure it out, you got to perfect that first one. And then once you have that good starting point, you can start making minor tweaks and then you can start diagnosing people are coming back and they're like hey this one's a little bit you know tight on the bottom end or you know it's a little tight and then you can make that tweak and it teaches you even more on where to hit it or that drill depth needs to be just 0.01 deeper you know to give you this just different adjustments that you need um it's still you learn it as you go like i don't think it's ever a finished product i think when guys get a finished product, then they start working on the next one. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. Um, it's just like for my, my NWTF calls, like, I don't have a jig that is good for that style of call making competition. It's just I don't have a jig that, that has that high pitched hail with, you know, with that screaming ring on top. And so, I mean, I found – I. You know, an old tone board that I'd done from scratch that was still pretty close to what I wanted. And uh, this is one of the tricks I show guys. I'll, I'll put that tone board in a flat jig and I'll take a, a Sharpie and basically, you know, make the outline of that tone board on the inside of that flat jig. So when I'm, when I was making my NWTF calls, I was literally, you know, starting from flat. And then I would sand and I would slide it in that flat jig and I would see, you know, how close I was to, to that one I've made several years ago. And uh, that's, that's really helped me out. And that's, 
to me, that's a good trick for somebody that's, that's not ready to make a, you know, have a custom jig made. They've got a flat jig. They've got a tone board. They, they like quite a bit, but needs a couple small changes. You know, that's a way to, to make sure you're getting that tone board fairly close to the last one. Yeah, absolutely. What I, uh, I had talked to Ostevic, and this is podcast 13. I think he's been mentioning 12 of them just because I talk to him all the time. But uh, what he had told me back in 15, we were talking about jigs, is he got an unhardened one. And he actually went out there and started grinding on that thing once he really found something that he liked. And he got it, you know, 90% of what his tone board was. So that way he could cut the most of it off and then get out there and you know make those little tweaks by ear and figure stuff out and i'm sure he's got a a jig since then but uh i know that you know getting an unhardened tone board is not that or flat jig is not that expensive guys want to get out there and break out an angle grinder and some sandpaper to get something closer they can have a one of their own jigs without making that commitment of having that hardened 350 dollars jig yeah, and and then some guys that are, you know, they might have started out as a good woodworker. That wasn't me. You know, I'm I'm a duck call guy. My wife always says, "Well, you can you can make this beautiful little duck call. Why can't you make me a, a bedroom suit or something?" I'm, <laughs> I'm not that guy. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen some people that you know they make these these just hardwood jigs. You know, that look just like a jig from Webfoot or something. Uh, you know, somebody's got the ability to make something like that and then go for it. I mean, I, I don't even have a saw in my shop that'll cut a true 90-degree angle. Uh, so that, that's out for me. But. That's the same with me, man. I hate cutting uh, blanks up to, you know, cutting it down to uh, barrel size and stuff like that because it always has some run out into it. So I just always have to cut it that half an inch over so that way I can make sure I put it on the lathe and true it up. Yeah, that's the same with me. But, uh, yeah, man, I I agree with you in the development process, and it's it's fun to just see how other guys get started and how they start working, just their, their mindset on doing different things. I don't know, like you said, you're just the guy who went out there and just did it. You, you know, you had some help as a younger guy, but you came home that one day and wanted to make that hybrid. So you just went out there and did it. And that's, I admire so many call makers because that's so similar to the way that, you know, I am. I'm just going to go out there and try something. Like if it breaks, oh well. Like big deal, I'm going to try it again and I'm going to figure it out. And I love that about call makers is we're all guys that just go out there and try something. It'd be way easier and way cheaper to go to the store and buy uh, Echo or R&T or a buck gardener but uh i don't know it's that hobby the passion to be a a creator yeah i mean that's um that's me and it's the same way with with hunting you know like you said i've hunted with just about every call that you can buy off the shelf but uh it it seems like i would always keep going back and finding a a handmade call that, that me or dad had i would end up hunting with it and actually i started on on my instagram page which i'm i'm kind of an amateur on instagram stuff i'm i've had to get my wife to to tell me how to do a couple things but um with like the hashtags or something i started you know a hashtag the other day do hashtag hunt with a custom 
and that's what man there's just there's so many people that they don't there's so much there's such a big percentage of the the waterfowl market that doesn't even know that mike meredith or will shelley john cap um mike stelsner i mean you know some of the the bigger guys that you know have that put out a lot of calls you know even you know cnc stuff i mean to me you know michael meredith his calls are still uh, to me they're still a custom call even though they're they're cnc i mean you know he's he's taking and he's uh you know doing the the backboard the exhaust and everything himself um and to me, that's still a custom. There's just there's such a big percentage of the market that doesn't even know those guys are out there. Oh yeah, and I know like Mike, he'll still hand cut most of his off of his jig. He'll get everything CNC'd out, and then he'll still hand cut it. And uh, like you said, the guys like us that even if we weren't call makers, the guys that are into the the handmade custom calls, it's such a niche market. Niche market, however you want to say it. Um, uh, compared to the waterfowlers out there, I would say guys that collect custom calls and know about custom call makers are probably less than five percent of waterfowlers out there. I would say, oh yeah, and that might be a high number. Yeah, I mean, you take, which it, it's easy for us or, or me anyway to, you know, I'll look on um, call nuts and you know you see the people that are just their calls are are hot on there. Everybody wants them. They'll pay ungodly amounts of money for them, but and that seems like it's uh, you know a lot of people are after them, but it's it's really not, um, and it, it's surprising. Uh, you know, kind of when I got back into it, I was uh, you know just talking to some of my buddies and stuff about these. You know, look on those pages, and everybody wants one of these the the mig thirteen, seventeen, whatever. And uh, everybody wants uh, detox. Well, none of these, none of the guys that I know that duck hunt have ever even heard of those. And uh, I try to always tell people, you know, even people that that I hunt around or, or I know that are big hunters in the in West Tennessee and stuff, you know, that have bought my call. I say, man, you need to check out John Caps Detox. That's a bad dude. Um, or, or you need to check out one of Meredith's or, or something calls. It's because that's, I mean, that's the way. <clears throat> I mean, there's, I'm not making a living doing it, but there's several guys that are. And uh, once the, the people on calling us and stuff get one of your calls, I mean, that's how they're, that's how they're going to make a living. It's the word of mouth. So I try to always throw people's name out there when I can, help them out. Yeah, that's a that was one of the big reasons that I started doing that live streaming a couple of years ago was talking to contest callers, call makers, uh, different guides, stuff like that. That's one of the reasons that I love doing this. Not only am I just you know talking to different guys and learning more about them and the way that they do stuff, but it also helps get your guys' name out there a little bit more. It helps get the the art because. This is geared towards anybody who wants to listen to it, but I really hope that it helps out that new guy who just started turning calls and is like, hey, I don't know if, like, I feel dumb asking this question or I don't know who to talk to. Should I even approach a Brad Samples or, you know, a Ronnie or anybody like that to ask a question? 
and then you hear me talk to you know I, I have Ronnie I have Brad there's a couple of different guys that I have lined up that I've mentioned but guys that I've even talked to in the past like yourself who we've all had that same feeling of man I don't know if this is the right thing I don't want to annoy people I don't want to bother people I feel stupid asking this question but you know to know that that is a thing that we've all felt hopefully it keeps that guy going and because he might be the next you know John Kep or you know Mike Stelsner in five years you never know yeah I mean that's what um, that's what people don't realize is that um, call making is not like being a professional football player it's, it's not one of those things you're, you're either born with it or you're not it's, it's something anybody can do with enough time you know obviously some guys will pick it up quicker than others but um, I mean, one of my my long term goal is to win the you know the whole shebang up there at NWTF, and it's not so so I can get recognition or anything else. It's because I remember going up there as a kid and seeing you know Mike Stelsner or John Kemp or something win it all, and in in my mind that was the the Michael Jordan, you know, that's just unattainable. That's the coolest thing ever, you know, seeing that trophy or that ring or whatever. You know, to me, that was as attainable as getting a Super Bowl ring at that time in my life. But, you know, I've, I've come to figure out that with enough practice, you know, anybody can get there. It's, uh, now, there there definitely is a, uh, a big gap <laughs> to get there. You, know, you can be a really good call maker, but that's that's next level stuff is being able to beat those people. But I just hope by the time I get there, those guys are still entering. So I, just so I can say I, I beat them one time. Exactly, exactly, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's something that I talked with with Stelsner about before. You know, I, I, t- I tell him all the time, you got to keep entering NWTS so I can beat you one day. <laughs> That's what uh, Meredith told him, too. We were talking about this on a podcast a while back, and uh, Stelsner told him something, oh, you might get to win because I'm not going to enter next year. He goes, man, don't you freaking quit entering because if I'm going to beat you, I want to. if I'm going to win, I want to beat you. I don't want to just win by default type situation. Yeah, and that's – and me and – Michael Meredith had talked quite a bit about NWTF and the contest and stuff. Me and him both have kind of the same feeling that it's not necessarily a judge of who makes the best duck call. It's it's a it's a contest to see who can make the best duck call to fit this criteria. Which that's uh, I mean it's tough to do. I mean you got to know what you what you need to build to do good in WTF and and being able to take a sound in your head and put it into a call is it's tough. Yeah, it's a uh, I don't know, man. There's so many. I like that. There's different competitions. You know how Real Foot is ran different, um, and then you have NWTF, and then you have St. Charles. Everything is judged differently. Easton's judged differently, and I like that. There's different ways to for different contests it it just gives you different perspectives and different ideas on how judging is done and uh how the contest is done so that way it's not everybody's just stuck you know a main street routine 
every main street contest it's the same freaking thing everybody it's going to be done the same way for ever and make small little tiny changes throughout that become the norm but nobody else is running it's like the difference between it'd be like if uh everybody who entered main street was entering meat and live duck and it was all part of the same you know setup where a lot of the guys will enter the same thing but you know what i'm saying where everything's the different contests are ran differently so you have a different opportunity at different contests yeah yeah i agree but the i mean the good thing is is that especially like with nwtf uh, the first year well that was the first calls i made when i started making back was let's see this was 2020 NWTF in 2019 is when I, I entered calls in NWTF for the first time. Well, first time recently. And uh, honestly, I, I made an acrylic call and when I made it and delivered it off, I had in my mind that there's no way this call can be beat. <laughs> and looking back, I can, I can literally sit here and laugh about that because there's a million ways that call can be beat. <laughs> uh, but uh, and it actually it I made I entered three calls and it it placed the lowest of all three. Um, so it's one one thing that's good about those competitions is you figure out um, if your call is one that anybody can blow or just you can blow, uh, and that's that's a big thing to get over, especially if if you're you know a good caller that can adapt to a call real well. I mean I used to catch myself I I'd make a call and. I'd be like, man, this is a great call, and I'd hand it to one of my buddies or five of my buddies, and they're all like, man, this guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of that was one of my biggest things getting into uh, was sending out calls set up the way that I wanted them to be set up. I run a call with a lot of air, you know. I punch. I yeah. use a lot of air, so my calls are a little bit stiffer for the average guy. So I would send them off in the mail, and then a week later, I'm like, hey, I really like this thing, but. It's a little bit tight. It's a little bit stiff for me. Can you? Can I send it back to you? Have you rework it a little bit? And I'm like, dang it, man. I'm sorry. I've been trying not to do that. It it's hard when you blow a call for you know six hours a day tuning calls, and then you go to send one off, and the other guy who picks one up you know three or four times a off season, and is like, whoa, dude, this thing is uh, runs a little stiff. Yeah, yeah, that's uh. I mean, another thing that, that I've had to start doing was, like, when I'm tuning my calls, I'm sitting at a big desk facing a wall that's made out of um, masonite or whatever. And uh, it's, you know, when I'm blowing straight towards that wall in this, I don't know, 20 by 15 foot room, it sounds a whole lot different than it does out in the field. Um, and I've made calls. I'm like, man, that's an awesome call. And I can take it out, put it on my lanyard, carry it up. And I'm like, man, this is not what I thought it sounded like. So I started, you know, my neighbors may think I'm nuts. They don't even know what I do probably. But I walk outside and blow a call just to, especially when I'm trying to come up with something new just to see if it's what I want. But, yep, I agree, <laughs> man. I, uh... If I'm tuning multiple calls that day or, you know, something like that, I'll always, you know, have a couple of different calls on there. And, uh, you know, like I'll have one of Mike's or one of Eric's or one of my old ones, and I'll keep it on the table next to me too because after tuning three or four different calls, 
I'll have to pick it up and run somebody else's just to make sure I'm even know what I'm listening for. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, everything starts to run together. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I've uh, I've started. I, I try to leave at least, which I don't even have my personal cut down right now. That that first one I made, I actually I gave it to a guy to to map out to do some CNC calls just because I you know I don't I don't want to to make a living off of it. I just want I don't even know if I'm going to advertise them that much. I just want to be able to if somebody messages me and it's like man I want one of those calls to hunt with. I don't want to have to tell them well you know I've got. 50, 20, 50, 150, however many calls to make before I get to you. And uh, you're not going to be able to hunt one this season. <laughs> so I just want some of those where I can say, well, look, if you want a custom call, I can make you one. It's going to be a while. But if you just want something to throw on your lanyard, I can tell you one of these. And I think so, that's a smart move to do it that way. So long story short, I don't even have the original call that I've been making these cut downs based off of. Basically, I don't ship out a call until I have another one tuned up to compare to. Because um, I, I haven't even had a jig made off of that yet. Which <laughs> I, I really need to do that. But yeah, that's a wild a way to do it, man. Because if somebody drops that sucker, it'll be interesting. So, that's... Uh, but yeah, I always try to have one sitting right there by it. And, and when I'm tuning it, I like, you know, pick up that other one and blow it. And, and a lot of times I realize that I'm not as close to being done as I thought it was. <laughs> That's always the, like, the worst feeling. You're like, yeah, man, this thing is running, running balls out. And then you go blow a different one. You're like, uh, almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've got a little a cardboard box that, from when I moved shops from dad's basement to the shop i had built last year it's a it's just a big cardboard box full of calls that i made seven eight years ago and tone boards it's look like toothpicks and everything else <laughs> and uh i just if i can't i'll spend i don't know sometimes i spend over an hour on one tone board after after i i've got a a jig that's fairly close to my that hybrid cut down and uh, once I cut it off that if uh, if I can't get it where I want it in the next hour I'm going to pitch it in that box and start <laughs> over I think that's I saw uh, it was either Kep or Stelsner say that that if they can't get it done right after like 15 minutes on the jig they pitch it and freaking start over <laughs> uh, I'm not <laughs> I'll give it a little bit more time than that and uh, sometimes I'll I'll just lay it down, and come back the next day and try again. And uh, a lot of times I've figured out that you know I just get so frustrated and I'm just I'm sanding, I'm not thinking about it, and uh, I just lay it down, come back the next day, and it'll I'll be able to make it sing in about two minutes. But that's the best way sometimes, man. I uh, whenever I finish up a custom. I'll usually hang on to them for another day or two and like leave them on the mantle and then pick it up, you know, a couple hours later, a day later, and then make that, like I'll get it to 99.9% done and think that it's, you know, ready to roll and then I'll pick it up that day later and I'm like, yeah, I want to tweak just this little bit and then I'll put it in the box and mail it out. Oh, I, 
that's what I do with all of mine because I mean especially um, I try to if I buy wood I try not to turn it for at least six months even if even if I'm buying it and it's supposed to be dry just uh, just because it's crazy I mean you leave a, a insert that you've cut sitting there for two days and it can be tuned up it can be the best call ever and every now and then you can leave it sitting there a couple of days and something will change and it's usually you don't take much to get it back right but um i try to let that happen that change happen before i ship it out and uh, i always i buff my calls the day i'm going to mail them and after i buff it and sign my name that's when i i start over with a fresh cork and fresh read every time yeah, I think that uh, the I think the cork is a huge culprit that um, gets a lot of people. Like if during season, if I'm hunting a lot, if I'm hunting three or four days a week during season, I'll replace my cork every two to three weeks because you'll notice that that flat soundness going to it very quickly. I'm sure being a competition caller, you know far more about that than I do, but that cork goes significantly faster. You know, the more you use it. Well, and there's a there's a big difference in cork too, and I, I didn't know that. It's a big difference in different mylars. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I just getting back into the swing of things. It's taken me a while to figure out, you know, where I want to order my cork from, where I want to order my mylar. Um, and honestly, I, I've seen big difference in in just you know, I order mylar from one place one time, it's great, and the next time it's is garbage um and so i mean i've started you know i'll send somebody send the people an email or something you know ask them is this is this sheet mylar did it come off a roll um <laughs> you know in cork i've kind of settled in on that but you know i'm using the stuff that's got a little bit more of the rubber in it and uh i don't think it sounds as crisp as as the super hard stuff but it doesn't once that super hard stuff goes dead it it's done man you know, it's 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 absolutely done and a lot of the you know i try to remind myself that a lot of the people that i'm sending calls to you know they don't have a tackle box full of reeds and cork um so <clears throat> i try to send three or four cork with them i usually don't send too many reeds but yeah, you end up with a lot more problems with uh, sending a bunch of reeds, but uh, definitely corks. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I've never tried those those black Santa Prime or whatever. I, 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 I do so many wood tone boards. They in mine, they were always too tight. Mm-hmm. I haven't had any luck sanding them really, but. Yeah, I do so many wood tone boards. I would I would never use one of them just because I'm afraid of splitting or something, you know, like but I, I know of guys that have done it and uh I don't know. They they have a little more pop to them cuz the density, but I I'm the same way as you. I like that rubberized cork. But anyway, brother, I will uh I don't know. We've been going for about an hour and 15 hour and a half we've been together so uh i'll let you get back to work i'm gonna go knock off some honeydews on my day off and do some yard work that i didn't get done the other day because of the rain and uh i really appreciate you coming on here today man oh yeah thanks man i enjoyed it absolutely and if uh people want to reach out to you and grab one of those cut downs or any other call that you make how could they get a hold of you 
Uh, I've got Facebook page, uh, Travis Ward calls. My Instagram page is the same thing. You just shoot me a message on my my regular Facebook page. Cool, brother. I absolutely appreciate it. Like I said, for your time and really thank you for coming on here. I love the work that you've been putting out and. Uh, I don't know, man. It's always fun chatting back and forth with the call makers. A lot of uh, different call makers and people will hit me up about these podcasts. And I always tell them that I like doing this almost as much as call making, if not more. Because, yeah, man, I'm just a BSer. I just really like to talk to guys and I really like to find out how they do things and their mindsets. And we're just cut from a different cloth, man. All of us call makers, I feel, are very. uh, very similar in our mindset. We're all tinkerers. Uh, that's true. That's no doubt. <laughs> all right, brother. But I'll uh, I'll let you get off here and get back to work, man. All right. Thank you, Chris. All right. Take care, buddy. See you. Thanks. All right, guys. That was Travis Ward out of uh, Western Tennessee. He makes Travis Ward calls. He's been doing it for... God, I didn't know he'd been doing it that long. Started since before he started driving. I uh, felt like a baby call maker talking to him with uh, the amount of experience he has. And there's a lot of guys that have been doing it a lot less time than I have. So it was really cool to hear him talk about the history. And uh, I'm always so jealous of those guys that grow up in such that, that waterfowl-rich area. I uh, I didn't grow up with somebody that waterfowl hunted. And none of my friends waterfowl hunting I I uh, was the guy that kind of got all of my my childhood friends into duck hunting, and then I made more as I branched out and met local guys. But I don't know. It's just really cool to see how guys do things and, you know, like I said a hundred times, and what they do and how they grew up doing it. So I appreciate you guys tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, I got some more coming up here in the next week. Uh, make sure you enter the contest. Subscribe to the podcast i love it that you guys are following leaving feedback comments check it out if anybody wants a uh a half good sounding call hit me up too i can always sell you a half good sounding call as well all right guys have a good one